This podcast is from Christian Chapel in Tulsa, Oklahoma. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. If you're unfamiliar with Advent, Advent simply means arrival. It is the four Sundays preceding Christmas. It's a time for the church uh, here at Christian Chapel, the church around the, the country, around the world to slow down, pay attention, and just ask ourselves once again, what does the arrival of Jesus mean for me? What does the arrival of Jesus mean for us? And so this year, we are, uh, have titled our Advent message series, An Unexpected Christmas. And unexpected seem like basically the, the perfect theme for a 2020 Christmas message for a couple reasons. First of all, this is one of those years where the first Sunday of Advent falls immediately after Thanksgiving, uh, which I'm always personally a little offended by. Uh, I, I always want a full week in between, right? I need Thanksgiving, I need the Sunday after Thanksgiving, and then we can shift. But like last Sunday, there were people up here decorating for Christmas before Thanksgiving, and the whole thing felt wrong and, and just kind of messed up. But we have to do it anyway, so, so we just jump into it. Um, and, and then it's also just unexpected because that's been the whole year. Like we had, a, we had a leadership retreat at Christian Chapel. We have one every January with our staff and board. And in January 2020, I promise you, we spent zero minutes talking about social distancing, city ordinances, uh, contact tracing, circles of infection, or any of the other things that, that have consumed our time, consumed our thoughts, and all those sorts of things this year. So we settled on unexpected Christmas. There were a couple other options we considered, uh, but ultimately were rejected. So we talked about doing a quarantine Christmas um, and with that, we were going to make it a little more interactive for you. So we were going to take out all the chairs. And have you seen those little um, like personal tents that moms sit at in soccer games? Any of you seen those? So we were just going to set up like 150 of those in the room and tell you like, just come in. Everyone's in their own bubble the whole time, uh, just hot and sweaty, but decided that would work really well uh, for the 915 service and be really gross for the 1045 service. So uh, we, we scrapped that one. We also talked about doing a uh, contact tracing gospel, you know, and, and really kind of making it cheesy and slightly judgmental of, can they trace the gospel back to you? Uh, you know, and, and just kind of, you know, really like a personal evangelism focus. And then the last one that we rejected just for obvious reasons was Jesus Unmasked. And that was, that was going to be the big theme, but I know for some of us it would already be like, yeah, Jesus Unmasked! Forget that, you know, and so, so just to save myself, we went with an unexpected Christmas. Um, and unexpected has been the, the way that many of us, now not all of the unexpected things that have happened to us this year have been bad. Some of us, um, there's been some unexpected good news, unexpected changes at work, unexpected blessings. There have been some unexpected marriages, probably some unexpected babies, um, just unexpected good things that have happened. But for many of us, it's been a year where we have been taken off guard by the situations we've encountered. And so this year, as we kind of work our way through the Christmas story, the arrival story of Jesus and the Gospels, we're going to see that God works in our unexpected moments. The spaces where we don't think he should show up, we don't think he will show up, we don't think he wants to show up, that he shows up and he works in really strong, really miraculous ways. So to start that today, we're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. Now this is part of the Christmas story, but I can almost guarantee you it's a part of the Christmas story that you never read at your family gatherings. So Matthew 1, uh, 1 through 17 is the genealogy of Jesus. So if you grew up or, or maybe still currently read a King James Bible, this would be the, uh, the begats section, right? He begat him, he begat him, he begat him, and on and on and on and on we go. 
if you're reading an NIV or a more modern translation, it's going to say he was a father of him, he was a father of him, so on and so forth all the way through. This is just a section that we normally, in our Bible reading plans, we skim right through. We want to get to the good stuff, the arrival of Jesus. But I want to spend a little bit of time in it this morning and asking ourselves, why does Matthew include all this information? And what do all of these names tell us about who Jesus is and why Jesus has come? So the, the genealogy of Jesus is basically his origin story. Right? Your, your favorite superhero movies, they all have an origin story. Uh, some of you have probably made a decision to learn more about your origins. Um, anybody in school ever have to do the, um, like the family tree, come in and show everybody your ancestors? Some of us did, yeah. So when I was in elementary school, I think we did it in third, fourth, and fifth grade. And I lived in Ark City, Kansas, this real small town on the, the border of Kansas and Oklahoma. And so we would come in. Now, this was before Ancestry.com or 23andMe. Any, anybody have done those? Yeah, just giving your DNA to the man to do with what he wants. Let me know how that turns out for you. Uh, right, when you're framed, it wasn't me. Like your DNA, right? And then they've got your microphone in your house. It's recorded. Like, okay, um, anyway, so uh, getting back to what we were talking about. So when I was in elementary school, that was before the internet uh, really existed. So those weren't options. So you would basically go home and you would talk to your parents and then you would call your grandparents and you'd try to fill in the box as far back as you can go. Most kids would come in with their great, great, or sometimes great, great, great grandparents. But then I, I don't know if this was a unique Ark City thing, but every year, third, fourth, and fifth grade, there were at least three kids in my class every year who had come in and had traced their ancestry back to George Washington. They were all related to George Washington. I don't know how. I don't know if this was some little circle of Washingtonian influence in Ark City, Kansas, where, you know, it's just kind of the natural progression from Mount Vernon to Ark City. Uh, my assumption, though, was this was a bunch of bored little kids or parents who just decided, yeah, let's throw some famous names back there. So, yeah, you're related to George Washington. I think Martin Luther King Jr., too. He was your uncle. And uh, Abraham Lincoln, he was also one of our... And they would just kind of trace it back, but there was no actual proof for it. Now, when you get to the genealogy of Jesus, this is not what Matthew's doing. He's not just grabbing a couple random names and saying, see, look, he came from famous people. But he's actually tracing back, most likely using the genealogical records that would have been on file at the temple and showing us this is who Jesus is, this is where Jesus comes from, and then from some of those stories also making a point about this is why Jesus has come and this is what Jesus will do. So as we're going to read through this here in just a minute, it's broken into three sections. First is the section from Abraham to David. In that section, Matthew is making the point that Jesus fulfills God's promises to Abraham, that he will make him into a nation as numerous as the stars in the sky. The second section of the genealogy is from David to the Babylonian exile. This is the, the section where it's all the kings. So in this section, Matthew is making the point that Jesus fulfills all of God's promises to David, that he will never fail to have a descendant sit on the throne of Israel. And then the third section are a bunch of names that we don't know at all from the exile to Jesus. And in that section, he's making the point that Jesus fulfills all of the promises to the Israelites in exile, that God will renew them, restore them, and establish a kingdom through them that will never end. Okay, so those are kind of the, the big chunks and the big reasons. We are actually going to read through it um, line by line together. So if you have a Bible, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, hang in there with me as we go through it. Forgive any mispronunciations. There are not a whole lot of Chris and Angie's in the genealogy of Jesus. It's a, quite a few names that we will never say again 
after we read this. So Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nishan, Nishan the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. So there's section one, Abraham to David. Now section two, David to the exile. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jehoram. Jehoram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Ammon, Ammon, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. So section two, David to Babylon, and now section three, Babylon to Jesus. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, which that's the one you got to be really careful when you say it in public. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abihud, Abihud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Achim, Achim, the father of Elihud, Elihud, the father of Eleazar, Eleazar, the father of Methan, Methan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Now again, Matthew includes this for a couple reasons. To prove Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, of God's promises to David, and of God's promises to the Israelites in exile. Now any one of those three would make for a wonderful message, a wonderful path for us to go down this morning. But instead I want us to take a different option and see that God works through an unexpected past to bring Jesus into the world at just the right time, in just the right place, in just the right situation, among just the right people to achieve his purposes. And what we understand is is Jesus' past is not at all what we would necessarily expect it to be. Because there are some shady people in the family tree of Jesus. There's some crooked branches, there are some notches, there are some people that we would not expect to be included, and yet Matthew goes out of his way to include them, to teach us a point. So um, kind of to put ourselves in the right frame of mind, uh, think of your own family. Okay, Now in your own family, not just your immediate family, but your extended family. In your extended family, there are some crooked branches, right? You might have, I don't know, maybe you got together over Thanksgiving this year and you walked in and there was the one cousin that you were surprised of like, oh, we didn't know you got out of prison. Good to see you. Right? There's just always that family member. Normally it's an uncle or a cousin for whatever reason. Sometimes it can be an aunt, but there's just always those people of, we know they're there, but we don't admit to being related to them, and we definitely only talk about them behind their backs, right? Um, So, and that's just not in my family, but I've heard from some of you that's how your families work. So, uh, this is, this is just kind of the, the normal expectation of the crazy family members don't get acknowledged as our family members. And yet what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of slow down, work our way through the genealogy of Jesus, not 
all of it because that would take forever, but just kind of hit the highlights of it. And what we'll see is that Matthew goes out of his way to highlight some unexpected people to tell us and teach us about the unexpected mission of Jesus on earth. So the, the first thing we see is there are some unexpected women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus. Now, it's unexpected because Israelites trace their lineage through their male ancestors. So a normal, um, a normal family lineage, a normal genealogical list, would include only the names of the men. But Matthew has gone back and he has intentionally inserted four different names. He mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. Five if you include Mary, but for ourselves this morning, we're just going to focus on those four. So the question we want to ask is, first of all, why does he include women in his list? And secondly, is there a recurring theme that ties these women together? And then thirdly, if, that th if we find that theme, then what does that say about the arrival of Jesus and what does it mean for us today? So to do that, we've got to go back and, and look at each of their stories real quickly. So Tamar, you find her story in Genesis chapter 38. And it is a full-on, like, Maury Povich, Jerry Springer type story. There's just a whole lot of, is that in the Bible? How many parents, when you pull up something on Netflix with your kids, you look at that little rating up in the top corner, right? And it tells you what it's rated, and then it tells you why it's rated that. And it'll, it'll have words of, like, rated TV 14 for violence, language, gore, whatever, right? So Tamar's story. Rated TVMA for prostitution, incest, and just general weirdness. Right? It's not a story that you're going to tell at the family reunions. So Tamar's story, she is the daughter-in-law of Judah. Right? Now Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, so, so this is important that Judah is included here. She's the daughter-in-law of Judah. She's married to one of his sons. His son dies before Tamar has a child. Now according to the Old Testament law, the responsibility of Judah and his other sons is to provide someone to Tamar to basically get her pregnant and provide her with a male heir to carry on her deceased husband's name. Kind of strange, but it's the way things work. Okay, and, and so Judah doesn't do it. He provides one son who doesn't fulfill his duty. There's a whole weird story there that you can read later uh, and, and things going on. And so Judah is not doing what he's supposed to do. His sons are not doing what they're supposed to do. So Tamar decides she's going to take matters into her own hands. She dresses up like a pagan temple prostitute. She plants herself outside of one of these pagan temples on a path that she knows her father-in-law travels. And apparently she knows her father-in-law also likes prostitutes. She hangs out there. He walks by. She gets him to go in the tent or wherever with her. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. He later finds out she's pregnant, says, well, how did that happen? Clearly, we're going to have to kill you. And then she says, surprise, it's yours. Right? Now, this is one of those your granddaddy's your daddy kind of stories. <laughs> Not the one you want to tell, right? If any of us have that, you probably don't even know that story. Your mother would never tell you. And yet Matthew goes out of his way to say, hey, the genealogy of Jesus, the Savior, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, remember Tamar? And it's just very strange and very odd. And, and then you keep going through those stories, and it, it doesn't really get any better. So the next person is Rahab. Find Rahab's story in Joshua chapter 2. The nation of Israel has been led out of slavery in Egypt. We just spent eight weeks walking through that story. They come to the edge of the promised land. They disobey God. They're sent back into the wilderness for 40 years. 
For 40 years they wander, and then they come back to possess the promised land. So uh, Rahab's story takes place when the Israelites are coming into possession of the promised land. In Joshua chapter 2, spies are sent in to the city of Jericho. Rahab, is, it's told to us, is a prostitute in the city of Jericho. So Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and acts like a prostitute. Rahab is just full on a prostitute. This is what she's done. It's what she's always done. It's how she makes her living. It's how she supports her family. Not only is she a prostitute, she's a Gentile. She's non-Jewish. She's one of the pagan people who are supposed to be driven out of the land for their evil way of life. So she has multiple strikes against her. Yet in Joshua chapter 2, we see she welcomes the spies into her home. She tells them, we've heard about the Lord. We see what he's doing. We know that God is on your side. So when you come conquer this city, please remember me and my family. And the people of Israel make a deal with her of, okay, we will. Bring them all into your home. You'll be preserved. Well, not only is Rahab preserved, but as you keep reading her story, you see that apparently at some point there's a shift where she's no longer Rahab the pagan prostitute, and she becomes Rahab, one of the the key women in Israel, and she marries into the Israelite community and becomes part of the lineage of King David, King Solomon, and ultimately Jesus himself. And so we've got Tamar who pretended to be a prostitute, Rahab who actually was a prostitute, and now is probably a good point for me to tell the parents, our kids are also doing an unexpected Christmas in Chapel Kids this morning, but with entirely different passages. So they're over there, don't, no worries, I know some of you are already like, oh my goodness, it's going to be a weird car ride home, right? No eight-year-olds asking you of like, what's a prostitute? What is adultery? What's infidel? Like, you don't have to worry about that. They're talking about Elizabeth and, and Zachariah and God's promises being fulfilled. It's a very, very, we saved all the awkwardness for us this morning. So Tamar pretends to be a prostitute. Rahab is a prostitute. Rahab is a Gentile. Then we come to Ruth. Now, Ruth seems like, okay, finally, a more normal one, right? She's got a book of the Bible named after her. Clearly, not a whole lot of shady stuff happening here. Uh, and so, so Ruth, the, the problem with Ruth uh, from a Jewish perspective is Ruth is a Moabite. Now, the Moabites were a despised people of Israel. In fact, you can go back in Genesis and read the story of how Israel says the Moabites came to be, and it's just just a terrible, incestuous relationship. It just continues the difficulty of what we're talking about. So Ruth is a Moabite. When the Israelites come out of Egypt, they are met by the Moabites in the wilderness who treat them so poorly that Moses says no Moabite can become a a member of the community of God's people for at least 10 generations. So for the Israelites, there are Gentiles, and then there are Moabites. They are the lowest of the low. And yet in Ruth's story, she follows her mother-in-law back to her people. She is eventually brought in by Boaz and made his wife, and she becomes a direct descendant of King David. So we have a pretend prostitute, we have a for real prostitute, and now we have one of the most despised Gentile uh, people groups included in the lineage of Jesus. And then lastly, it brings us to Bathsheba. Now, Matthew can't even bring himself to write the name Bathsheba in the genealogy. She's simply referred to as the wife of Uriah and the mother of Solomon. But we know the story of David and Bathsheba. You can read it in 2 Samuel chapter 11, where Bathsheba is married to Uriah the Hittite. So again, she is most likely a Gentile woman because an Israelite father would not have given his daughter in marriage to a, a Gentile like a Hittite, like Uriah. So she's married to a Gentile. She is a Gentile. And when her husband goes off to fight King David's battles, King David stays back, looks down from his roof one night, sees Bathsheba bathing, calls her, has her brought 
to, the, to himself. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant. And then he brings her husband back to try to cover up his actions. When Uriah proves himself more righteous than David and won't go home to sleep with his wife, David instead sends Uriah back with a message that says, put Uriah at the heaviest point of the fighting. When it gets really serious, pull back so that he's struck down. So David has taken advantage of Bathsheba. He slept with her. He's got her pregnant. He's brought her husband back to try to cover it up. And when that doesn't work, he's decided, I'm going to kill your husband. So Uriah dies in battle. David brings Bathsheba into the palace to be his wife. The child that was conceived dies. And so her life just seems like one of incredible loss and pain and difficulty. And yet God then blesses her with another son who becomes Solomon who rules at the peak of Israel's power. So again, we're, we're looking for what are the common threads that come through here. And one of them that we see several times, we'll get to the second one in a minute, but the first one I want to point out is, is most of these women, there was some sort of scandal, some sort of rumor, some sort of, well, how did she get there? Right, for Tamar, it was always a story of, who is really those boys' daddy? For, for Rahab, it was, well, we know who you used to be and what you used to do. For Ruth, it was always, why would Boaz pick someone like you as a wife? What did you do to get him to choose you? And then for Bathsheba, it's the, we know you were married to him, and now you're married to him, and that doesn't seem right. And so they all seem to have this scarlet letter that they carry with them in one form or fashion, and some of the rumors are unjustified and unwarranted, and others of them are completely and totally true. But Matthew seems to be including them in the genealogy of Jesus to make the point to us that even the marginalized, the overlooked, and the despised are valuable and useful in God's kingdom. And that what we have done in the past cannot prevent us from being, from being part of what God wants to do right here in the present and what he wants to do in the future. So the inclusion of these four women is not just encouraging to other women, but it's encouraging to all of us who have any skeletons in our closet that we would rather not people know about. Anything that we think, oh man, I, I, whether the rumors are true or not, any space where we think, I wish no one knew about that, Matthew is telling us, not only did Jesus come for you, but he came from similar situations. He had those stories in his family background. And so whatever you carry, whatever baggage tries to pull you down or drag you away from God's purposes and plans on his life, the inclusion of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba is supposed to be a reminder to us that God can use everyone all the time to achieve his purposes and his plans. So there's unexpected women, but as you keep reading that story, there's also some unexpected sinners. So in in that, that second portion of the genealogy, it's basically a list of the kings. So if you've read through 1st and 2nd Kings or 1st and 2nd Chronicles, you've read the stories of some of these men, Rehoboam, Joram, Manasseh. So there's good kings that are listed for sure, right? There's David, there's Solomon, there's Hezekiah, there's Jehoshaphat. But there are also men like Rehoboam, Joram, and Manasseh who are terribly evil kings. Now again, if you're Matthew and you're writing the genealogy of the Savior of the world, you would think you would prune out some of the less desirable stories. But each of these men, and others like them included in that list, were horrible, wicked men. They knew what God wanted them to do, and they absolutely refused to do it. They engaged in idol worship. They led the nation away from the Lord in idol worship. 
They entered into compacts and agreements with other nations that the Lord had told them to be separate from. They entered into marriages that led them astray from the Lord. Some of them even offered their own children as sacrifices to false gods. These are the men in the ancestry of Jesus. And so, so what does it mean for us? Well, it means a couple things. First of all, it means no one is ever too sinful or too far gone to be used by God. And secondly, it means the sins and disobedience of men and women will not keep God from accomplishing his purposes and his plans. Now, it's not an excuse, right? The, the fact that Rehoboam or Joram or Manasseh are, are listed in the lineage of Jesus doesn't mean that you and I can sit here today and think, well, fine, I'll just live however I want and then God will use my life anyways. All of these men still experience the judgment of God. They still experience the consequences of their behavior. They still brought heartache on the nation as a whole. But Matthew includes them to remind us that even when people are actively and adamantly opposed to the purposes and plans of Jesus Christ, he will not be stopped. And so for some of us, we might look back in our own family tree. We might look back in our own personal history and think there are some dark spaces there that I don't want anyone else to know about. Or there are some dark spaces there that I think disqualify me from who God is and what God wants me to do. But what Matthew is teaching us is Jesus comes for all of you. He comes for every part of you. He knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you have done. And he still comes to reveal his kingdom to you. It's also an encouragement to us when we look to the world around us and think, oh my goodness, there's no way God can ever accomplish his purposes because there's so much sin, there's so much opposition. It's just this great reminder of no, he can and he will because he has and he does. And when God ordains it, it will happen. So as people of faith, we don't live in this fear of man, if he doesn't straighten up or she doesn't straighten up, God's purposes and plans won't be fulfilled. But we live with confidence of I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be obedient. I'm going to share the gospel with others. But even if the whole world rejects him, Jesus will still build his kingdom. He will still accomplish his purposes. So there are unexpected women. There are unexpected sinners. And then going back, honestly, to, to the women, there are also some unexpected relationships. So what we see in the story, the other part of the women being included is to teach us that interracial relationships are a key part of Jesus's lineage. Okay, so if uh, prostitutes and incest and all that weirdness doesn't make you uncomfortable, let's just go over here and we'll see if we can push you over the edge in, in this direction, okay? So, so Tamar, there's some thought that maybe she was a Gentile. Um, with Rahab and Ruth, there's absolutely no doubt they were Gentiles. They were outside of the covenant community. And then with Bathsheba, because she's married to a Hittite, it's assumed that she is also a Gentile. Now, here's, here's where you and I have to do a little bit of work, because I think there are times we can read through the Old Testament, we read about Israelites and Midianites and Canaanites and Hittites and Jebusites and all this, and we just think, oh, that's, that's basically they're all the same. Right? It's like people who live in Oklahoma and people who live in Kansas. I'm sure there's a little difference, but for the most part, everybody's the same. But what, what is actually happening with each of those tribes, in, in many of them, it actually is there's a different race of people, different ethnicity of people. There's also differences of culture. There's differences of language. There's differences of worship. There's differences of how they marry and how many they marry. There's differences of how they raise their children. There's differences of who, who they offer as sacrifices and who they don't offer as sacrifices. There's this whole world of difference. And so it's, it's very 
clearly drawn lines of we are the Israelites and they are everyone else. We're the inside and they are the outside. And there might be a way for them to get in, but they're always going to kind of be second class citizens to us. And yet Matthew goes out of his way to draw a line and say, look to you Israelites. And now Matthew, he writes primarily to a Jewish audience. And so he's writing to tell them, look, you put a lot of value in being the sons of Abraham. You put a lot of value in trying to prove the, the purity of your lineage. You put a lot of value in saying these are all the reasons that we are not like them. But he goes out of his way and he throws in these four different names to remind them God has always used people from the outside to be part of his story on the inside. And he's always welcoming people who are supposed to be kicked out and left out into the family to be used for his purposes. Which means for us as followers of Jesus that this is included in the genealogy of Jesus to remind us that Jesus comes not just to speak to the divisions of race and culture, but to destroy the divisions of race and culture. Now, now I, don't, I don't know necessarily where, where you land on that, what kind of home you grew up in. Um, I don't know, honestly, sometimes what language is offended, uh, offensive and what is not. Uh, but Jesus basically, Matthew's making the point, Jesus has a mixed race heritage, right? And, and most of us in the room would acknowledge, yeah, so do we. I mean, that's maybe the beauty of those ancestry uh, kind of things is they tell you, like, basically they just tell you what version of mutt you are, right? Like, we're all, we're all mixed from here, there, and everywhere. And while we know that's true, we still at the same time hold on to the divisions of race and culture and ethnicity and nationality. And we allow them to create divisions. Now, this year at Christian Chapel, we've had a couple different conversations about, hey, Jesus comes and there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. And he comes and destroys all of these barriers. And so as the church of Christ, we should model the same equality, the same inclusion, and the same relationships that bridge across the lines of race and culture. And, and for most of us, we would agree, yes, absolutely. I mean, to the point, like I've had a few conversations this summer where people have asked me, hey, I know we're talking about this a lot, but do you really think racism is still a problem in Tulsa in 2020? And my response every single time is, I'm the wrong guy to ask. Like, look, look at the color of my skin. I, no, I don't have problems with racism. I'm not uh, oppressed. I'm not persecuted. No one's ever called me racial slurs in any way. But I know it's still a problem. And, and if it's still a problem in our culture, then it means it's also something the church should continue to speak about and should continue to model a different way. Just this, this past week, our, our youth pastor, Pastor Cream, he was uh, just down here on 71st at one of these restaurants. So goes in for dinner with his wife, with his two little kids, Brielle and Kalel, and, and loads them up in the car when they're done. They're in the parking lot. And have you ever had that moment in the parking lot where you're driving at a slow, reasonable speed and somebody else comes barreling in like it's the, you know, the final turn at Daytona? And so they just come in, and they came in heading towards Kareem, his car, with his wife and kids. So he does what I would definitely do, what many of you would probably do as well, just a quick little honk, right? Because in that situation, it is your civic duty to honk at that person and let them know, you are a bad driver. That's what the honk, Ganji tells me all the time, stop honking at people. I'm like, how are they going to know? How are they going to know unless I tell them? Right? The same way I share the gospel, I got to share the good news that you're a terrible driver. 
And there are times that I receive that news from others as well, right? Sometimes accompanied by a, like a one-finger wave. Uh, and, and so anyways, Kareem's in the parking lot. He honks. Now, literally, I would say hundreds of times in the, the 20 years that I've been driving, I have honked at someone and nothing's ever come of it. I've been flipped off a handful of multiple times, right? There, there might have been some words that were yelled at me, but it's never went anywhere past that. But Kareem... One honk. Now, what's the difference between me and Kareem if you are driving by? Right? I mean, I know we look about the same age, but aside from that, uh, you know, the, the main difference is my light skin and Kareem has dark skin. And in that moment, if I'm there, I honk, those guys drive by, I drive off. For Kareem, he honks, they stop, block his car in the parking lot, two men jump out on each side of his car, start to scream all kinds of racial slurs at him, his wife, and his kids yell at him, why don't you go back to the country you came from, which is Miami, right? Like, Florida? That's where I'm from. Where are y'all from? Now, in that moment, I think we can all agree, in our culture, we still have a problem. And so it would be ignorant and unfaithful for us as Christians to say, oh yeah, but that's just out there. That's not our problem. Instead, even if we can look at our, our own lives and say, no, the Lord has worked in me, he has purified me of that, we still now have a responsibility to model these same interracial relationships to our culture. It might be marriage, it might not, but it absolutely must be friendship. So this is where we're then forced to ask ourselves some of those more uncomfortable questions of if this is included in the lineage of Jesus, which means it's also included in my lineage because I've been brought in as a son, as a daughter of God then am I still accurately reflecting my ancestry? When was the last time I had somebody who looks different than me sit at my table in my home? When was the last time I went to lunch with someone from a different background? When was the last time I intentionally built friendships across the lines of race and culture? Because here's our job as a church is not just to say, yeah, that's what they did or that's what Jesus does, but to also say this is what we are still doing. Matthew includes these four women and their relationships in the genealogy of Jesus to make the point to us that Jesus is going to make again and again and again, that in Christ there are no pure bloodlines. There is only the blood of Christ. He's the one who comes to reconcile us all to himself. He is the one who comes to completely and finally destroy these walls of hostility that sin creates. He's the one who comes and says, it doesn't matter skin color, it doesn't matter language, it doesn't matter nationality. In Christ, you are brothers and you are sisters, and you are to love one another and you are to care for one another. Now, now Matthew is, we, we don't fully understand it, but Matthew is setting the tone for the rest of his gospel in the genealogy. And he's letting the people know, Jesus is going to offend you over and over and over again. And he's going to interact with people you don't want him to interact with. He's going to say things you don't want him to say. He's going to go places you don't want him to go. He's going to bring a unity that you don't desire. Instead of elevating you over everyone, he's going to bring you all on equal standing before God. So he's just saying, hey, it's, it's not going to be what you expect. So there's unexpected women, there's unexpected sinners, there's unexpected relationships, and then the last thing we see is unexpected anonymity. So when you get to that, that last third of the genealogy, it traces from the Babylonian exile when the Jews are sent out of Israel into Babylon as a sign of God's judgment, all the way back to the birth of Jesus. Now in those generations, it's full of names that you and I don't know and don't recognize. 
And the reason is they're, they're not, that's, those stories aren't told. We don't know what they did in Babylon. We don't know outside of a handful of names anyone that was there when the Israelites were in exile. So in the first section, it's Abraham and his descendants. We know those stories. We've read those stories. The second section is David and all the kings. Again, 1st, 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We know those stories. We've read those stories. But the last section, the generations immediately preceding Jesus, are full of people that we know absolutely nothing about. In fact, if they weren't included in Matthew's genealogy, we never would even know their names. But that should actually be wonderful encouragement to us because while Jesus' ancestors, they're, they're no longer kings in palaces, but they're shepherds in pastures. Or they're, they're carpenters working in little shops. They're tradesmen, they're housewives, they're just everyday, ordinary people. But it's encouraging for us because what are we? Everyday, ordinary people. And their significance comes not from who they are, not from the titles they own, but in the fact that they are connected to Jesus Christ. Through all those years, through all those different locations in Babylon, on the road back from Babylon, reestablishing themselves in Jerusalem, reestablishing themselves all over Israel, living under Roman oppression, in all of these spaces, they never achieved the power, riches, or influence they had previously, but they were still in the lineage of Christ. And so their lives still had meaning. Their lives still had significance. And it it seems like Matthew has started really big of, hey, we're all sons of Abraham. And here's David and all the kings. And look, it's for us too, though. It's for the commoners. It's for the overlooked. It's for the ignored. It's for the unseen. That Jesus comes from an everyday Joe and Mary for everyday Joes and Marys. He comes looking for the overlooked. He comes seeking out the ones that no one else wants. And and so for me, it gives me tremendous comfort. It should for you as well, because most of us, we're going to have the same experience of, hey, two or three generations after we're gone, nobody's going to remember us anymore. There's not going to be books written about us. There's not going to be libraries dedicated to us. But if we've attached our story to his story, then our influence still will have a difference and our lives here matter. Not because of what we've done, because who Jesus is, and the fact that Jesus has chosen us. Dr. Michael Wilkins summarizes the genealogy of Jesus really well and some of the points that Matthew's trying to make. He says, There is no pattern of righteousness in the lineage of Jesus. We find adulterers, prostitutes, heroes, and Gentiles. While this does not excuse Matthew's readers from their responsibility to pursue godliness, it surely caused them to stand in awe of the God who sovereignly works his will through everyday people. Matthew points his readers beyond the personal qualifications of individuals who belong to the line of the Messiah. He focuses instead on the faithfulness of God to bring about his plan of salvation. This month, that is our focus as well. The faithfulness of God to bring about his plan of salvation. So we're going to talk about how Jesus shows up in unexpected places at unexpected times. We're going to talk about how he shows up to and through unexpected people. But this morning, I want to leave you with this idea of if Jesus has an unexpected past and God uses all of it, then the same is going to be true for you. God will use all of our story to tell all of his story. So you might look back at your own personal history and think, there are some things that I wish I wouldn't have done. There are relationships I wish I wouldn't have entered into. There are choices I made that I regret. Or maybe you look farther back and think, hey, there there are stories about my mother, about my father, that I wish I didn't know, and that I don't want anyone else to ever know. 
There are things that happen to my grandparents or my great-grandparents. Or, or maybe you look back and you can trace some cycles and patterns of destruction from generation after generation after generation in your family. Maybe you've even embraced some of those this morning. And so in that space, the enemy comes and says, because of what you've done or because of where you've come from, God doesn't want you and God can't use you. And yet, as we read through the genealogy of Jesus this morning, we're being reminded that where we have come from and who we have come from is not as important as the God who has been at work in every generation. That the things we have done cannot disqualify us from being used by God in these moments. So we might look back at our own histories and see all kinds of wickedness and shame and sin and things that we wish would go away. And in that space, our response is not, well, I know what I did and I know God can't use me. It's, well, God knows my past, and he's still speaking, he's still calling, so, so I'm just going to confess, and I'm going to repent, and I'm going to trust that God knew exactly who I was when he was calling me. And if he knew who I was, then he had every intention of not only forgiving me, but of using me. And not just using the parts of my story that I think are presentable, but using every part of my story, telling his whole story through all of my history. So we don't have to whitewash who we are or what we've done. We don't have to pretend that where we've come from is better than it is. We don't have to carry the shame of what our parents or grandparents or great-grandparents did. We don't have to adopt the destructive cycles that seem to run rampant in our family. But instead, we can choose to believe God sees me, he knows me, and he's calling me with full knowledge of who I am onto a path that results in Jesus being made known in my life and Jesus being made famous in the world. An unexpected Christmas is going to remind us over and over and over again that God still shows up to unexpected people and he still shows up through unexpected people. So there are going to be some, some times and spaces where we think there's no way God would come speak to me here. There's no way that he would want to show up in the middle of this mess and yet he comes again and again and again, and, and this morning could be one of those moments for some of us. Right, whether we're in person, we're online, we're listening later, it could be that time where we're just saying, Lord, I, I don't think you'd want anything to do with me. And yet we begin to experience his grace. We begin to feel that tug of his spirit saying, I see you, I know you, and I'm calling you to follow me, to walk with me, to experience the life that I'm offering to you. In those spaces, embrace the unexpected. Thank God that he comes when we don't expect it. Thank God that he comes when we don't deserve it. Thank God that he comes when we're not even looking for him. But he comes to pour out his grace. He comes to call us into new life. And he comes to use our story to tell his story. We stand with me. I want to pray for us. And then the band's going to lead us in a final song this morning. Jesus, we come to you this morning with hearts that are grateful for your arrival. Lord, we thank you that you come in the middle of our sin, that you come in the middle of our hurt, that you don't wait until we are cleaned up and presentable, but you come right down into the middle of the mess with us. Lord, I pray for each person who's here today. First, I pray, Lord, for those who don't have a relationship with you. They've never taken their place in your family. Today, I pray that as your spirit speaks and draws and calls them, Lord, that they would repent of their sins. They would surrender their lives and begin to walk in this new path as your sons and your daughters. That they would be adopted into the lineage of Christ. And Lord, I pray for those who are here who feel like there are 
elements of their past that they can't talk about. Things that they have done or that have been done to them that they've believed the lie that those disqualify them from your purposes and your plans. Today, Lord, I pray that your spirit would come and remind us of the truth that you are the God of the unexpected. You're the God who works through the spaces that that we think you want nothing to do with. So Lord, we come against every lie of the enemy. We come against every deception. We come against every form of false guilt and shame. Lord, we come against every form of oppression that the enemy tries to attach to our sins that have been forgiven and washed away. And in those spaces this morning, we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see how you're going to use all of our story to tell your story. How our darkest hours are trophies of your grace and your forgiveness and your mercy. Jesus, will you come in these moments and assure us that you know us completely and you love us completely. And help us to continue to step into the path and the plan that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you're here and you would like someone to join with you in prayer, maybe to say yes to Jesus for the first time, or maybe to deal with some issues, some skeletons in the closet, if you'll head out the back doors and to your left, our prayer team will be waiting for you in the prayer room. If you're worshiping with us online, you could drop those off at christianchapel.com slash prayer. One of our pastors will be in touch with you this week. We're going to finish this morning with this final song. It's just an act of worship, a reminder that Christ has come and he reveals the power and presence of God to us. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christian Chapel. For more information, visit us online at christianchapel.com.